Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all. And I am excited to start this new series on the five books of Moses. I've had some questions already about the, the graphic on the front of the handout inside. I'll explain that next week. <laughs> but we are, yes, starting a series on the five books of Moses. So the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. So the Jews, the Hebrews, call these five books the Torah. English folks call it the law. And the Greeks called it the Pentateuch, which just literally means five books. So the word Torah means guide or instruction or law. The, the word law is actually, especially in the way we understand it, a fair, fairly narrow understanding of it in terms of the way we think of law and laws. Um, but we're going to be using these terms interchangeably throughout the series. So if I refer to the law or the book of the law or... The, the Torah or the Pentateuch, that's what I'm referring to, the five books of Moses. But before we jump into the first book of the law, the book of Genesis, I wanted to take today and look at uh, what the law says about itself in terms of one of its central purposes, because it's, it's, it's stated central purpose here in this passage for today, Deuteronomy 28, 58 through 63, is, is really the one of the big reasons why we wanted to go through this series uh, between now and the end of 2022. So let me read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 58 through 63. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Now, let me take a brief pause there. The video that you will watch this week if you do the accompanying study, has a, it's a brief explanation of what the name of God is and what it means. But in our English translations, whenever you see a capitalized the Lord, okay, that's where the English translators uh, made the decision to not actually put God's real name in. His real name is Yahweh. And so the text actually has the word Yahweh. And again, this is, we'll explain this as we go through. And that, again, that video explains it. So whenever we see a capitalized the Lord, as we read through the texts that we are going to be going through over this series, we're going to use the word Yahweh because our, our idea of the Lord or the term God I think has become so generalized that it quickly um, goes over our heads. And if we hear the actual name of God, I think it will give us a little bit of pause and help us to really think and realize that uh, this is the being that we understand the supreme God and Lord to be. His name is Yahweh. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. 
and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is, not record, that is not recorded in the book of this law, Yahweh will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh, your God. And as Yahweh took delight in doing good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now, this is a fairly serious passage, obviously, but he begins by saying that if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name. We can see that doing the words of this law and this is Moses writing shortly before he dies as he sends Israel off into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Doing the words of this law, the five books of Moses, produces a fear in the glorious and awesome name of Yahweh. And that's really what we want to grow in as a church we have, over the last two years, organized our series in such a way to predominantly address challenges that we are facing in our culture. And oftentimes, we can let the challenges that we face personally or the challenges that we face in, in society and our culture, um, we can let those things become so big that we minimize the greatness and the power of God. So much so that, that the reality of God and who he is doesn't make as big of a difference in our lives as he should. I once heard a metaphor. Oftentimes we see the problems in our lives. Um, it, it, we can see the problems in our lives like a spoon. And if we hold the spoon out far away, the problems in our lives are real small. They're a spoon. But if we bring that spoon closer to our eye, the spoon completely covers what we see. And all we can see is the spoon. So if our problems are in the broader context of reality, in the, in the broader context of who God is and what his promises are for us, then we can see them accurately. And we can deal with them effectively. But if we see all of our problems, again, whether they're personal or whether they're societal, if we see all of them, and that's all that we can see, and we don't set them in a greater context, then those problems will overwhelm us. So our goal is to grow our vision of God as a church, to grow our vision of God, to increase our fear in the glorious and awesome name of Yahweh, 
our God. So he uses this word fear, and the word fear, fearing God, fear of God, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an idea and a phrase throughout all of Scripture. Generally, we consider fear a bad thing. And when we read this passage, you're, you're like, I mean, this is kind of like the classic Old Testament God that so many of us and, and oftentimes our culture kind of really automatically thinks about God. If you do good, you're going to be fine. But if you step off out of line at all, God's going to bring the hammer down. I mean, that, this passage really kind of communicates that God functions that way. So we generally consider fear a bad thing, and we generally consider God a bad thing if we understand God predominantly in this way. You know, fear it means that you know, we're insecure, it means we're hesitant, it means we're scared. Uh, sometimes fear overwhelms us and immobilizes us, and then we can't do anything. Sometimes fear leads us to pretty substantial anger, and oftentimes wrath and hostility and violence so that we can protect ourselves from whatever it is that we are afraid of. But we also acknowledge that in some ways fear can be good because it keeps us from engaging in dangerous things or dangerous places or from dangerous people if we listen to and respond to the fear that we have about something that could harm us. But again, I generally think that we think of fear as a bad thing. So, why would God desire us to fear him? We need to ask that question. If we look at the text, if we don't fear God, bad things are going to happen to us. At least the text as it was delivered to God's people when Moses delivered these words to them before they entered the promised land, as the scriptures came into their place of completion, uh, shortly into, um, uh, well, a few hundred years before Christ, actually, is when all of these things became assembled into what the Jews would call their Bible. Um, whoever reads this needs to understand that God is going to do bad things to them if they do not obey. And we have to ask the question, is that a way to follow God. Do we, do we want to serve a God that operates like that? Again, our culture really understands, I think, the Christian God or the Jewish God in this way, predominantly. But we see other texts in Scripture where the fear of God leads to happiness, which is peace and joy and an inner, an inner, um, inner happiness. Uses the term blessed. And throughout the wisdom literature, we see that those who fear the Lord are blessed. Those who fear the Lord are happy. Also, those who fear the Lord are prosperous. Their families are prosperous. Their work is prosperous. Their finances are prosperous. These things all come from fearing God. And so we, we see um, these, these variety of ideas in the Bible around fearing God. But I think what, ha what has happened, what, what does happen, what I know happens, lots of people have talked to me in this way over the years, and I think, again, we see these kinds of things in our culture. It's probably at least on a monthly basis where I'm reading something in popular media where they, where they compare 
they compare the God of the Old Testament to the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God of law. The God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. The God of the Old Testament is a God of hate, and the God of the New Testament is a God of compassion. Let me just state uh, unequivocally right now, and this is an, an idea that you will see that we're going to work on over the course of the series. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. What, what does it mean to fear God? We're going to come back to that idea, but what, what does it mean to fear God? And so the definition of the term, if you just look it up in the dictionary, it just literally means to be, to be feared, but also to be revered, to be held in honor. It doesn't mean to be scared or afraid. It's a different term. Last week, I know Deirdre covered uh, this, this also this idea of fearing God and expressed the, the notion that the fear of God leads to be leads to being overwhelmed and controlled by that fear. When Leon Cass, he's a commentator I enjoy on the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, when he comes to um, the word, the fear of God, he always will say it in these two ways, an awe towards slash fear of God. And so there are three ideas that I want to focus on today First is awe toward, second, fear of, and the third is an overwhelming control. So first, awe toward, and also, um, I got the recommendation to maybe include a brief outline of my sermon in the notes so you can follow through. So on page six of the handout, there is a brief outline. Okay, so I am under Roman numeral number two, point B number one. <laughs> you can take notes as we go through. So first, awe toward. To hold something in awe is to view or experience something so majestic and so wonderful that, that at first you're kind of dumbfounded and speechless. But as you take in whatever it is you are seeing or experiencing, as you take it in, thoughts come to mind and then words come to mouth and they express some sort of adoration, some sort of appreciation, some form of worship. That's what awe does. It can be something that's beautiful it can be something that's skillful. It can be something that's powerful or just magnificent in size. Any number of things. It stops us in our tracks. It captivates us. You know, a few weeks ago, we, I, I was in Portugal doing some work, and uh, I had some frequent flyer miles, and Anna and Alicia had some time. And so we added a few days onto the, to the trip, and... Uh, in Portugal, there's a river that runs from the Atlantic Ocean, well, it runs from Spain to the Atlantic Ocean. It's called the Douro River, and it's in the Douro Valley. And um, I had never traveled up the Douro Valley 
in this river, but they have, they have been growing vineyards in the Duro Valley for hundreds of years. It was the first region in the world to be designated this, like a special wine growing region prior to any of the, the regions in France. And uh, so we took a couple extra days and, and spent a few days up on the Duro River. And we went to this site um, that's a high point on this particular area of the valley. And it just overlooked, I mean, we could see thousands of acres of these vineyards planted in this steep, on these steep hills, held up by terraces that have hand-built stone terraces that have been there for hundreds of years. It was one of the, I mean, I've told people this since we've got back, it was one of the most beautiful things that I have seen. I was in awe. I was in awe. And you know, you want to experience these kinds of things deeper. When, when you see them or experience them, and again, it can be something that's beautiful, something that's skillful, something that's, you know, we know that we know times when we are held in awe. There's always something that's, that's drawing us in, in a more deep way. But we also know that we can never quite experience all it seems to promise. And that's because all of these things, which the scriptures testify to throughout the, both, again, the Old and New Testaments, they testify that there is a creator of these things. Whether it's beautiful people, beautiful creation, the power of, of the natural environment with the fires, earthquakes, these things that hold us in awe are pointing to the creator and source. These things in and of themselves will never be able to satisfy us. God will ultimately produce in us a sense of awe towards him that is more magnificent than the awe that we experience from anything else. And so that's what we want to grow in. That's what we want to grow in. That's what God promises, which then takes us to the second idea, fear of. And we can't downplay the role that actual fear plays. It, it causes us to take a posture of caution. The text today, I mean, as you read it, you're like, my goodness, that sounds like a really severe God. And we should read it that way. God is the greatest power. He created everything in heaven and on earth. He created everything. He created us. And as God, he, he demands our allegiance. He demands our allegiance. He's, he's God. He can do that. And he is fully within his right to punish us and to discipline us. To remove this idea would remove from us a sense of authority. And if we remove a sense from us that we have a higher authority, then what happens is that we become our own authority. And this is the problem of humanity since the garden, which we'll cover in two weeks. 
man and woman in the garden decided to take life into their own hands, to disregard the authority that God had over them, and to make themselves their own authority. And, and not only does it remove us from this sense of being obligated and alleged to God, it removes the foundations of morality and justice in our own personal lives and in this world. Because if we ultimately just become our own authorities, which is, which is where we're at in our culture, there will be a breakdown of morality and a breakdown of justice. God is not our pal, like we would think of a peer. Now, we're going to see that God refers to us and to the characters that we'll read about in the Pentateuch as our friend, but a friend is not our pal. It's not a peer. So what is the difference? Again, we'll, we'll spend more time with that as we go. So we need to have an awe towards something so magnificent and beautiful and captivating that it draws us. But then we also have to have this caution, this fear, because he's our authority and creator. And he has a, and he has a calling and will for us. And we are accountable to him. So we, we want to draw close, but we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. And the third thing is then this idea of overwhelming control. And I think the two aspects, awe towards and fear of, actually creates this overwhelming control. Let me explain why. When we have the sense of awe from something, we want to pursue it. We want, we want to take in and be and, and experience whatever it is that's producing this sense of awe. And, and, and we're drawn towards these things because we recognize that there is something greater to experience. You know, so I see these, for example, I see these, these vineyards and the, the, the skill and quality and the work and the tradition and the heritage and, that went into this, and you want to begin to learn more. Just so you start reading some books, start looking at more pictures. How do they go about doing this? See, it, these things that hold us in awe draw us in. We, we have the feeling that if I don't discover more about what this is that is creating a sense of awe in me, I'm going to be missing out on something. There's something beautiful and magnificent drawing me in. That's what captivates us. That's what captivates us. But the, and then there's the sense that if I don't draw nearer, the consequences are going to be painful. And so that's, that is what it means to, to live in the fear of God, to recognize that he possesses an awesomeness, to use the textual term, and a glory that really should be drawing me in and controlling me and captivating me. And that if I don't, 
not only will I not be experiencing something great, I'm actually going to experience consequences that hurt. And that's what God says. Walk in the fear of me, and, I will, and, and there will be an experience of me and my provi- provision that is beyond our comprehension and understanding. And if you don't, I'm going to make your life extremely painful. <laughs> so it's like the best ever versus the worst ever. And so that's what controls us. What controls us, when we, when we walk in the fear of God, we're controlled by these, 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 these two senses that are really held in tension. I want the most out of life that I could ever have, and I know that God provides it. And I really don't want to suffer pain that he puts on me. They're both there. If you take the awe away, you're just serving a God who is, and your sense is that you're always under the threat of being punished. And some people that grow up in conservative Christian traditions, that's how they learn who God is. It it took me a number of years to work out of, by God's grace, my predominant picture and understanding of that's how God was. That goes a long way. A fear-based approach towards God from the standpoint of God is just always ready to punish and discipline me. That works for a while, but it's not very compelling long-term, nor does it produce adoration and worship and love. But on the other hand, if all we are drawn to is the beautiful, the loving, the gracious, the good... If we're just drawn towards that and don't hold in balance the fear, then what happens is we're going we're gonna to enjoy all the grace and the love and the provision of God, but what's going to happen is that we're going to turn those things into licentiousness and, those, and, and the things that God blesses us with is in, in consequence of his grace and his love, those things are going to become idols themselves because we've removed the obligation that we have to obey and to fear. Because God has given us all things to enjoy. And he's also given us commands so that they don't become idolatrous. If we don't hold those two in tension, we do not worship and love and hold God in awe. We do not respect him and we do not obey him. So there's, those are the challenges then to fearing God. If we lack the captivation and awe, if we lack that, we won't be able to see the beauty. We won't be able to see the power and the magnificence. We won't be able to see the good things that God is and that God does. So to fear God, you have to, have, you have to be captivated by him. But if we lack the fear, the sense of authority, then we will become a law unto ourselves. which then will lead to a, fact, a lack of being overwhelmingly controlled, which means that we will be uncontrolled and directionless. We'll either be controlled by fear 
or controlled by licentiousness, but really no direction that leads to an experience that is going to bring about what God ultimately promises in knowing him. So how do we produce these things? How do we produce captivation and awe of God? How do we produce a a genuine fear and caution of God? How do we produce an overwhelming control? How do we... How do we come into these things? Well, I think there's three things. First of all, we have to grow in our knowledge and awareness of who God is. And that is one of the main points of the first five books of Moses. When Egypt came out of, excuse me, when Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, they didn't didn't know who God was. Maybe some of them had this, this, this passed down, this is 400 years from the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with this, this faded promise of a God who, is gonna prom- who had promised them some land. But it had 400 years of past. They didn't, they didn't know God. This is the story of that generation coming to a knowledge of who God is. But we also have to be aware of who we are. And mostly that we are not God. And that really is is in the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis. Instruction on who God is and instructions on who we're not. Because humanity immediately tries to start being God. So we need a knowledge of God. We need a knowledge of us. But we also need the opportunity and the provision to live and to walk in the fear of God. Is God knowable? Are we able to live without believing that we are God's? Is God providing some resource for us that we are able to walk in a fear of him? And so the, the, the answer to that is absolutely. God has given us his word. God has given us his word. The word of God beginning with the five books of Moses, reveals God. The word of God reveals who we are. And ultimately, and we'll see this in the beginning chapters of Genesis and unfolded throughout the five books of Moses, the words reveal the means through which we are able to walk in a fear of God. The word will reveal Jesus Christ. We're not going to discover the name Jesus Christ. The New Testament said the the prophets of old, the prophets of old would have loved to have known the person and the timing of this this promised God-man that would provide a way for us to know God and to walk with him in fear. And so the word is text, but the word is also the person of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John says the word was God, the word was with God, the word is Jesus Christ. So when we read the five books of Moses, we're going to be reading 
in some way about Jesus. So Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, everything in the law, the prophets, and the writings speak about me. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, everything that is written about me in the law, the prophets, the writings, the law being the five books of Moses, has been fulfilled. Now go and proclaim this among the nations. So what we're going to do is we're going to see that the word of God, God's provision to us, to teach us about God, to teach us about ourselves, to tell us how that we can come into a life of experiencing the awesome God, to where we can, we can experience all that he's created and move beyond the awe of those things to experience the awe of knowing God, which is what enables us to go deeper into this sense that we have. There is something more beautiful than what I'm just seeing. There is something more fulfilling than what I'm just experiencing. And that something that we are all drawn towards is union with God. And that is what God provides. Again, his word reveals to us Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came, the fullness came. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, we learn in Colossians. Jesus said, no one has seen the Father except the Son. So when we see, or read, I should say, when we read about people seeing God in the Old Testament, in the law, when we read about people hearing God, I think we tend to think that it's automatically, oh, it's the Father. Jesus said no one has seen the Father. Who is Abraham talking to when the text says he's talking to the Lord? Who is Moses talking to when he sees God on Mount Sinai? He's talking to Jesus Christ. He's talking to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old is the God of the New. They are one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There is no Old Testament God versus New Testament God. There is one God, and it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, and it is revealed in his word. So, we want to experience a deeper awe, a deeper fear, a deeper fulfilling experience with God himself. And to do that, we need to dig into the text of scripture and we're gonna start at the beginning with the Pentateuch. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are exceedingly excited about what your word reveals to us about you and about ourselves. And God, we, we are looking forward to this journey of, of deepening in, in our experience of that. So Lord, we, we, we pray that you would mightily bless us as a church as we study these, uh, these this, the, the books here of Moses and help us to see, Lord God, a clear picture of who, who you are. God, help us to, help us to really deepen in our, in our fear of you and all of its meanings. And help us, God, to, um, to walk according to your word, more faithfully that we could experience your filling through Jesus Christ. In your son's name we pray. Amen.